Today we're going to be talking a little bit about the healing power of gratitude. The healing power of gratitude. I read this article called Gratitude is the exclamation point in our life story, where author Christopher DeVinck writes, gratitude is the exclamation point after the narration of our lives, whether we are grateful for big things, life, liberty, love, or grateful for the small things, the flight of the Huron, chocolate, the scent of the sea. We are the only creatures on earth who can articulate a sense of appreciation with words of thanks. According to a joint study between the World Health Organization and UNICEF, one in nine people in the world doesn't have access to safe and clean drinking water. I shower every morning and I wash my car and sprinkle my lawn with water that I can drink. According to the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, one in nine people in the world go to bed hungry. I often can't decide if I want an orange, a banana, a pear, an apple, or other fruit nestled in the bowl at the center of the kitchen table. Ellie Weasel, a man who lost his family but not his faith during the Holocaust, wrote, when a person doesn't have gratitude, something is missing in his or her humanity. Gratitude is the quality of being thankful. It is the quality of being thankful, a readiness to show appreciation for and to return kindness, something the Bible says a lot about. And today, I want to look at one such story in the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is one of the four New Testament Gospels and was written by a man named Luke. Luke was a Gentile doctor and a man who may have been a traveling companion with the Apostle Paul. In addition to writing the Gospel, Luke also wrote the book of Acts, which is essentially a continuation of the Gospel according to Luke. As I mentioned before, there are four Gospels in the New Testament, three of which are called Synoptic Gospels, of which Luke is one. Synoptic means to see, optic, the same, sin. Matthew, Mark, and Luke include a lot of the same miracles, teachings, and sayings that make them similar. But as one source said, they are similar but offer a different portrait of Jesus. Luke was written after Jesus' resurrection, somewhere between AD 60 and AD 80. It was addressed to Theophilus, but is intended for all believers. Open your Bibles up this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Now it happened, as he, Jesus went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off, and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. 
And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice glorified God, and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Today I want to look at this this passage or this story in some detail and then explore some lessons and application that we can apply to our lives. Notice again Luke 17, 11 through 13. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off, and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Although the Bible does not um, specify exactly where this miracle took place, it does point out that Jesus was heading to Jerusalem and that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. So he's somewhere in between these two neighboring regions, what might be considered the outskirts of each of these areas, and he encounters a village. As he enters this remote village, there were these 10 men afflicted with leprosy, who from a distance were shouting again, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Leprosy is a very infectious skin disease. And in fact, skin disease is the general translation. The Bible does not clearly state what type of disease these 10 men had. But if a person had this condition, leprosy, he was considered unclean. This condition was detailed in Leviticus chapter 13, where the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and stated that any person with a skin condition should be brought to one of the priests for examination. Upon examination, the priest would determine how long a person might be quarantined and considered unclean. Notice Leviticus 13.45. Now the leper on whom the sore is, his clothes shall be torn and his head bare. And he shall cover his mustache and cry, unclean, unclean. So depending on the severity of the skin disease and whether or not it appears to be healing, a person might be quarantined for seven days or they might be cast out completely if the disease progresses or does not show signs of healing in order to keep it from spreading. One way to keep people from accidentally getting too close to a leper what we might call social distancing, was again, they were required to tear their clothes, let their hair down, cover their mouths, and yell out, unclean, unclean. In addition, they were to dwell outside the camp. And they were considered both physically and spiritually unclean. And this was primarily because in those days, people thought that God had inflicted this condition on people because of their sinfulness. From a social standpoint, 
The only thing more unclean than a leper was someone who was exposed to a dead body. These people were looked down upon, even hated, and they were not allowed anyone. Notice Numbers 5.2, command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge, and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse. They were legally not allowed to come within six feet of any human being, including their own families. That sounds like COVID. One article stated that the leper wasn't permitted to come within 150 feet of anyone when the wind was blowing. And they had to live in a community with other lepers until they either got better or died. From a medical standpoint, leprosy could cause some degree of nerve damage. And extreme pain and inflammation of the nerves is very common when left untreated with anti-inflammatory medication, which they did not have in the first century. Leprosy actually still exists today. A lot of people don't know that. According to one article, every year there are around 200,000 people who are diagnosed with leprosy. Scientists believe there are millions of people who have leprosy and have yet to be diagnosed. There are also many millions who are living with disabilities that have been caused by late treatment of leprosy. Most of the cases are in South America, Asia, and Africa, usually caused by significant malnutrition, extreme poverty, and poor sanitation, which reduces a person's natural ability to fight the disease. So clearly, these 10 people Jesus encountered were in a bad way. They were cast out of society, and they were in pain and suffering. And so they kept their distance, and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Mercy or pity is compassion or forgiveness. It's compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. These men recognized Jesus Christ was the Messiah. They realized he was the only one who could heal them. He was the only one who could do anything to save them from their dangerous situation. They were making an earnest and emotional appeal to a righteous God to save them. Notice the parallel between these 10 men who were suffering and going to die without Jesus' help and the modern-day sinner who are going to die without Jesus' help. Notice 1 John 5.12 he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These lepers knew Jesus Christ was their only hope. And how did Jesus respond? Luke 17, verse 14. So when he, Jesus, saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. Remember, the priests were the ones who would determine if you were clean or not, healed or not. And so Jesus, upon seeing them, commands them 
to go back and get checked out. And on the way, they were healed or cleansed. This was Jesus's response to the pleading for mercy. This was God demonstrating his greatness through his son and that those who cry out to him will be saved. Psalm 145, 19. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. Here's what's interesting about this situation. These men were sick, cast out, and socially unaccepted. And who knows how far they were from their own villages or towns. And Jesus tells them to go back to their priests. They were not healed on the spot. In their sickness and fallen state, Jesus commanded them to return to their homes and see their priests. And so they obeyed. It was in their demonstration of faith. It was in their demonstration of faith as they walked home that the healing took place. Jesus Christ, <clears throat> Jesus Christ told them what to do. They obeyed their master and they were healed. Jesus said, all things are possible to the one who believes. All things are possible to the one who believes. In Mark chapter 9 there's a story of a boy who gets healed. He was a mute spirit, had seizures, and would foam at the mouth, gnash his teeth, and become rigid. Jesus asked for the boy to be brought to him, and he convulsed right in front of Jesus. He then asked the father how long this had been happening to him, and the father replied, since childhood. The man's plea was, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Notice if you can do anything. And that is when Jesus says in Mark 9, 23, Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And the father cried out, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus Christ requires faith. That is what provokes action. That is what moves mountains. Mark 11, 22, 23. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done. He will have whatever he says. I read one article called Room for Doubt Makes Trusting Possible that said, as long as you have faith, you will have doubts. I sometimes use the following illustration, the writer said, when speaking. I tell the audience that I have a $20 bill in my hand and ask for volunteers who believe me. Usually only a few hands go up. Then I tell the volunteer that I'm about to destroy his or her faith. I open my hand and show the $20 bill. The reason I can say I am destroying his or her faith is that now he knows that I hold the bill. He sees the bill and doesn't need faith anymore. Faith is required 
Only when we have doubt or when we do not know for sure. When knowledge comes, faith is no more. Sometimes a person is tempted to think, I can't become a Christian because I still have doubts. I'm still not sure. But as long as doubts exist, as long as the person is still uncertain, that is the only time faith is needed. When the doubts are gone, the person doesn't need faith anymore. Knowledge has come. The writer says, I tell the audience that this is exactly the point Paul was making in his first letter to the church in Corinth. Now we see that a knowing word, but a poor reflection. Now we have confusion, misunderstanding, doubts, and questions. Then we shall see face to face. We don't see face to face yet. Now I know in part with questions and doubts. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Trusting in Jesus Christ is not easy because of doubt. But it is required. But not only that, notice Luke 17, 15 through 18. And one of them, one of the lepers, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? So here we have two sets of people that were healed by God, one who returned and nine who did not. And the one who returned worshiped, gave thanks, and the nine did not. First, what does it mean to actually glorify God? To glorify God means to worship, to worship him or to praise him because of his greatness, because of his exceptionalism. Notice Psalm 111.3. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. When a person acknowledges this greatness, especially in public, we give him glory, which is what we are supposed to do according to Revelation 14.7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Gotquestions.org did a great job in outlining the model given in 1 Chronicles 16 for giving glory to God, which is this. First, give praise to the Lord. Give praise to the Lord. Second, proclaim the greatness of God's name. Proclaim the greatness of God's name. Tell the whole world what God has done. Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Glory or exult in his name. Rejoice in him. 
Rejoice in him. Seek out the Lord and trust in his power. Seek out the Lord and trust in his power. Remember all the Lord's mighty deeds. Ascribe glory and strength to him because it is his due. Bring an offering to God. Worship the Lord. Give thanks to God. Give thanks to God for his goodness and love. And last, cry out to God for deliverance. Cry out to God for deliverance. To glorify God means to give him what is his already and not take it for ourselves. To give him what is his already and not take it for ourselves. Isaiah 42.8 I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. We are required to do these things. We are required to do everything in the name of God. Notice 1 Corinthians 10.31. Therefore, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And yet, in this story of the ten lepers, we have nine who did not return to glorify God. What kind of a person does not give glory to God even after receiving his grace and mercy. Essentially, these nine persons represent the vast majority of people who do not extol God's attributes, praise his works, trust in him, and obey his word. Think about that for a minute as it relates to our salvation as it relates to us being saved by God. The majority of us are a part of the nine. Many people have accepted Jesus Christ and his healing power, but don't return and glorify God. You see it all the time in modern Christianity where Jesus Christ is the healer, but not the master. It's not a question of the, la of the lepers being healed because they were healed. It's a question of their reaction to God's healing power. Those nine lepers went on their way without any gratitude at all towards God, without any understanding of their plight. God healed their bodies and made them clean, and yet they were unwilling to glorify God. If only they had realized he could have healed their souls and restored their relationship to God. I read this article called Entitlement Mindset Produces Ingratitude. That said the, the bigger our sense of entitlement, the smaller our sense of gratitude. Our entitlement mindset has led to a proliferation of lawsuits. When we don't get something we really want, we just sue somebody. For example, the San Francisco Giants were once sued for passing out Father's Day gifts to men only. A psychology professor sued for sexual harassment because of the presence of mistletoe at a Christmas party. A psychic 
was awarded $986,000 when a doctor's CAT scan impaired her psychic abilities. You have to wonder about the third one. I mean, if she was psychic, shouldn't she have known not to go to that doctor in the first place? Entitlement means the fact of having a right. It's the fact of having a right to something. Is it possible that the nine lepers thought that they were owed this healing? Or maybe they resented the fact that they had to suffer at all. But regardless of how they felt about the situation, the reality is that God does not owe anyone anything. Notice Romans eleven thirty four through 36. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who was who is first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. God doesn't owe us anything. We owe him our gratitude. But notice the one who returned to Jesus. When he saw that he was healed, he returned and with a loud voice, he glorified God and fell down on his face at Jesus's feet, giving him thanks. Falling on your face means taking a physical posture of submission and humility. It's a physical posture of submission and humility. You might, you might think of that as being on your knees and shouting out with a, a loud voice that God is good and praising him for his mighty work in our lives and in the lives of his children. Most people don't do that unless they're watching football and their team is winning. That's when they hit their knees. But this faithful, grateful leper returned to Jesus, falls at his feet and thanks him acknowledges Jesus Christ as being the only reason he is alive, much less healed, and he gives him praise, gives him all the glory. What a lesson in gratitude. Notice Jesus' response to this grateful man in Luke 17, 19. And he, Jesus, said to him, Arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. Notice Thy faith hath made thee whole. What does this mean exactly? Jesus used this term in similar ones in other situations. When he healed a woman with a blood issue. When he healed a blind beggar. When Jesus says a person has been made well, it means they have been preserved, rescued, saved. And this salvation is linked to faith. Notice again, your faith has made you well. This means it's not what they have done that has saved them, but rather that they have put their confidence in Jesus Christ. He's the one who has the cure. One source said the power of Christ was what affected the cure, but his power was applied in connection with that faith. Our faith is only a tool as the power comes from the one our faith is put in, God. That is what healed the lepers. 
That is what heals us as sinners, our believing in and trusting Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's important to point that out. It's also important to point out that Jesus does not heal everyone who has faith. He will some to be healed, but all who call his name, all who call his name will be saved. Romans 10, 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Gratitude is an essential aspect of our relationship with God because those who were destined for hell truly understand that as sinners, our rebellious acts against God carry the weight of an eternal hell as punishment. But we recognize that we have been made clean like the lepers, that we have been saved from hell by crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And he has had mercy on us. He has stood in our place and received our punishment so that we could be called children of God. That is why gratitude is so important because we are not entitled to his love, but yet we have it anyways. What else can you offer him? What else can you give him to show him how much he means to you for saving you? for healing you, but to fall on your face and give him gratitude. The more gratitude you show throughout your lives, the deeper your faith will grow. Colossians 2, 6 and 7, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it, Abounding in it with thanksgiving. Abounding in it with thanksgiving. I read one article called Thanksgiving Points Forward that said this. There was a passage that I memorized in college, the writer says, and I confess it meant nothing to me for about 27 years. But now 2 Corinthians 1.20 makes sense to me. As many as may be the promises of God in him or in Christ, they are yes. Here's what I think Paul is saying in this verse. All of the promises of God find their ultimate consummation, their ultimate fulfillment because of the work of Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ himself. Whatever goodness you enjoy in your life today, it is because of the work of Jesus Christ and all of the goodness points forward to the even greater work of Jesus Christ in the future. So how do you respond to this reality? First, you thank God looking forward. You long, you lean, you look forward and you say, God, I love this blessing. This is a great blessing right now. I love what you're doing in my life, but God, it makes me look forward to the day when Jesus Christ will return. Second, it gives you a great sense of worship and adoration for the God who is at work in your life today preparing you through today's blessings for the life that is still to come. I understand the idea of thanking God for the past and for the present, but as God's people, we must thank God for the future. We must thank him looking forward to the things he is yet to do 
because the things of life today are simply a shadow, a foretaste of greater things yet to come. What we should do is not take God's blessings for granted, as the nine lepers did, because there is a connection between faith, gratitude, and experiencing God's wholeness in our lives. And so the question remaining is, how can we apply this lesson to our lives? And first, I want to encourage each of you to cultivate gratitude in your lives by doing two things. First, by making gratitude a daily practice. By making gratitude a daily practice. Everyone can benefit from practicing gratitude every day by doing some simple things. Like actively remembering. Actively remembering and reflecting on the remarkable works of God. Notice Psalm 77, 11, and 12. I will remember the works of the Lord Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all of your work and talk of your deeds. Remembering the works of the Lord. Remember that God loved the world so much that he sent his son to save us. He endured all that we could not so that we could have everlasting life. This is something that we should think about often. Because this is the greatest work of God since creation. And it should be thought about, it should be talked about, and it should be celebrated with thankfulness. Charles Spurgeon once said, Oh, to have the word of Christ always dwelling inside of us, in the memory never forgotten, in the heart always loved, in the understanding really grasped, with all the powers and passions of the mind fully. In addition, we can actively serve others with the gifts that God has given us. We can actively serve others with the gift that God has given us. Notice 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God has given each of us gifts that should be happily deployed. And all the glory that comes from that should be given to God. Because he gave us the ability to begin with, and the glory is his. John MacArthur said, according to Christ, then the truest kind of leadership demands service, sacrifice, and selflessness. A proud and self-promoting person is not a good leader by Christ's standards, regardless of how much clout he or she might wield. And also actively giving thanks to God. Actively giving thanks to God. Notice Psalm 107, 1 through 3. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west 
from the north and from the south. We have to give thanks to our God who is good even when we don't understand that goodness. Even in the midst of our own suffering or pain because we are only here for a short time and God's mercy is eternal. And we have to be cautious of hypocritical thanksgiving. John Piper once said, there is such a thing as hypocritical thanksgiving. Its aim is to conceal ingratitude and get the praise of men. That is not your aim. Your aim in losing your tongue with words of gratitude is that God would be merciful and fill your words with the notion of true gratitude and actively pray, actively pray about everything, about everything. Philippians 4, 5 through 7. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The Bible says that we should pray about everything with thanksgiving. This is demonstrating faith in God. It is just what we should do. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And second, I want to encourage each of us here to examine our faith. Examine your faith and see how it affects your gratitude. And what I mean by that is our walk as Christians. Our walk as Christians is not just about receiving God's blessings, which are plentiful and wonderful. But are we able to be thankful even when times are hard? Do we have the faith to say, regardless of what I'm going through, I am grateful for God, for what he has done? Notice 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. People are prone to covetousness. Covetousness. <laughs> we love, we love to look at what we don't have or what we want instead of what God has already given us. And so we need to strengthen our faith and we need to be thankful for what we have. I read this article called this is the age of the narcissist that said of all the amazing features of the medieval cathedrals, one feature stands out as very strange to the modern mind. We have no idea who designed and built them. The architects and builders did not bother to sign their names on the cornerstones. People today might ask, why build the cathedral of Notre Dame if you can't take credit for it? No lasting fame, no immortalized human glory. We're perplexed by the humanity of these forgotten artists who labor in obscurity, do and disappear. 
This is not how we roll in America of the 21st century. All this humility and anonymity began to change during the Enlightenment. For example, when Jean something or other wrote his book, some weird name, I don't know, <laughs> Confessions in 1789, he dedicated it to, he dedicated it to me with the admiration I owe myself. The book opens with these lines. I have entered upon a performance which is without example, whose accomplishments will have no imitator. I mean to present my fellow mortals with a man in all the integrity of nature, and this man shall be myself. In contrast, the fourth century Christian thinker Augustine's Confessions, who the other writer ripped his title off, gives all glory to God, as in his opening line from the book of Psalms, great thou art and greatly to be praised. As much as we might admire Augustine's humility, Jacques' language sounds more familiar to me with the admiration I owe myself. It's a dedication that would look right at home today on social media. We have a choice while we are here on this earth to be like the nine lepers who showed no gratitude to God, or we can be like the one who fell down and worshiped, praised, and gave glory to God. And I encourage you this morning to be filled with gratitude toward God because in it you will find true healing. And before I pray, I would like to close by expressing my gratitude to God and to all of you for giving me the opportunity to serve <clears throat> as interim pastor. This is not an easy job. And it's had a lot of ups and downs in such a short time. It's challenged me professionally, spiritually, personally, mentally, and even physically. I'm sure I gained 20 pounds since I started. It has literally been one of the most difficult and rewarding things that I've ever done. God has blessed me to serve with some of the most incredible people. Our worship team is awesome. The elders are great. Our staff and volunteers are amazing. And each of you are amazing. I got to write more sermons, counsel more people, all testing my patience. And the truth is, I didn't deserve any of it. But I want you all to know that I am truthfully, um, truly grateful. I love each of you, and I look forward to continuing to serve as family pastor when Pastor Flynn gets here next week. And it's my prayer that all the glory be given to God. Thank you. Let's pray. <laughs> Thank you. Heavenly Father, God in heaven, thank you so much for the incredible opportunity to serve as interim pastor at Shadow Mountain Church and to work with such great people. I'm so grateful also for Tony Keating for helping me out during that process. He's an amazing man of God, and I just, I'm grateful that you brought him to this church. I pray, Father, that as our church move forward, that each of us lift up our hearts in gratitude to you, that we show our gratitude to Pastor Flynn as he takes over. And I just pray, Lord, that each of us would improve in our faith as we go about our day, that we would share our faith with others. 
Thank you so much for this lesson. Thank you so much for all that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.